The scripture reading is Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This has been the reading of God's word. Well, I want to thank you guys for uh, giving me the last uh, six weeks or so uh, uh, break from preaching. Um, I actually really enjoy preaching, and so it's not like I'm trying to get out of it, but it allowed time for my family and I to get away. We had a great vacation out west, and it also allowed me a little bit of extra time to to think and and to pray. Um, And kind of coming back from that, I had a couple of friends ask me, uh, hey, did you come back with any epiphanies? Did you come up with any epiphanies while you were gone? And the answer is, I, I didn't. I didn't come up with any epiphanies, so I don't have any, this morning, any new ideas or focuses for myself or for our church. But, but here's what I did come back with, for what it's worth. I came back from the break with a, a what I call a, a deepening. Uh, I have a, a deepened belief and this is not a profound statement, but I have a deepening belief that our, our culture is profoundly unhealthy and broken. That's not news in a room like this. I think everybody kind of agrees. You kind of look around, watch the news, talk to some friends, jump on social media. It's not hard to get on the, the idea that our culture that we live in is profoundly broken and unhealthy. Uh, but I also have a deepening belief that this is that our culture is so unhealthy and broken because the American church is so unhealthy and broken. It, here, here's what I've been thinking about. I can't think about a time in scripture or in history where the church is healthy and thriving, full of the Holy Spirit and vitality, and that there isn't an effect on the culture around us. In fact, That's what Jesus talked about. He promised it. He described, when he described the church, he described us using words like, you'll be salt and you'll be light. You are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. What he's saying is that there should be and is a, a unique nature of life and vitality among the believers in his community, in his family, that it shines out. And not only the people outside see that difference, but it has an effect on them. But we see it play out in the book of Acts. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out and it has a powerful effect. The religious and the irreligious, those who had been religious and those who had not been, suddenly see their deep need of a savior. They're overcome with conviction and they place their faith and trust in the same Jesus Christ as savior and Lord that they were previously crying out to be crucified. These people, who were formerly despisers of Jesus, mockers of Jesus, proudful haters of God, all of a sudden we see them immediately on the day of Pentecost flooding into the church, are baptized and then are filled with lives that are full of worship and rejoicing. And then as they're scattered, they change the cities and the regions that they go to. And not only are the cities and regions that they go to changed because there's a new high number of Christians that are, that are living there, even those who don't believe are affected. We see phrases like, they're fearful, the people around who don't believe are fearful of the church, but yet they also hold them in high esteem. 
They don't understand why they're worshiping this Jesus man who claimed to be risen, but yet they see a power and a beauty and a love among the believers that is inexplicable. And it says it has such an effect on them that not only are they afraid of them, not only do they not understand them, but it also says that they have favor with the people who are on the outside. That's what the church is supposed to be like. And that has been repeated throughout the ages when God's church is full of God's spirit and vitality. Every single time that we see that happen, it has an effect. And I, I, I can't think of a time when things have gone dark in a country that a place where there's previously known the light, previously seen salt and light, where morality falls away and immorality seems to reign, when what is right is now called wrong and what is wrong is called right. I don't know a single time when a, in a, a place that once knew light gets darker, when the name of God is mocked and the gospel defamed. I don't know of a single time when that's happened, when it hasn't been because the light of the church grew dimmer, and the salt in the church grew tasteless. In other words, when the light of the church and the saltiness of the church is not having effect on the darkness around us, the problem is always the lack of light and saltiness inside the church. It's not the problem that the dark is dark. The dark is always dark. The problem is that the light is not light. It isn't shining out. The salt is not salty. It doesn't have any effect on the culture around us. And my belief has only deepened that this is the great issue facing our generation as believers. I don't think there can be any question that this is the state that we are in. But not only is that my belief that that is the problem that we are facing in our generation, not only is that deepened, but so has my faith and my resolve as to the answer my conviction that God can and will change the church and the culture around us if we only seek him and obey him. My conviction has only deepened also that our apparent lack of resources is no impediment to that happening. I want you to hear that. I want you to hear that. Our lack of people our lack of finances, our lack of building, our lack of whatever you want to put in that blank, that blank whatever that lack is, our lack of those things is, is absolutely no, of no importance in God bringing an awakening to the church and to our culture. Hear this. It's of absolutely no advantage to have those things to see God pour out his spirit upon a church. And then see lost people pour into the church and the believers sent out to them. Here's what I'm saying. It makes no sense in God's economy to think this. Our great talent and resources plus God equals great things. What can we add to God? Our great talent and resources, our great strategy, our great plan, our great looking buildings, our our clever ability, our talent, our charisma, plus God equals anything. In fact, when the fact that we think that way, that we think that if we just had, if we just had a building, if we just had more money, I'm not turning down more money, by the way, or a building, If you're here today and you have a spare building or money in your pocket, we'll take it. 
But if we think, hey, if we just had this, well, then God could do something. Uh, then God could do something. You know what that actually shows us? It actually shows us the sickness as a part of who we are. That we've bought into is God plus something to equal anything. So what do we do? We have to start by viewing things the way that God views them, and that comes from his word, and letting it reform our thinking, how we think about things. And it comes from approaching things the way God tells us to approach things. And what we're going to see this morning is it comes from a remaking of our desires. And no real surprise, it comes from seeking him in prayer. We're going to spend the next three weeks talking about praying kingdom prayers. And we're going to do that by looking at two verses from the Lord's Prayer, two lines from the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 9 through 10, that Becca read for us this morning. In Matthew, this prayer comes during the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus decides he's going to tell them how to pray. And Luke, when he shows them the Lord's Prayer, says that they saw him praying and they asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he says this, he says before we get to our, our, our text, he says, Here's how you pray. Don't pray as the Gentiles do. They, they think that in their repetition or in their volume or something, that, that something will happen. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He starts by addressing God as our Father in heaven. And I want you to hear that this morning. I don't have time to talk about that. But if one truth could drop in your soul that would change your life, if you really believed if you're a believer this morning, that your father is God, that he is in heaven, so he is all-powerful and almighty, and he loves you more dearly, more knowingly, more caringly than any earthly father could. And he possesses all the resources in infinity to care for you. It says, our father in heaven, and it says this, hallowed be your name. That's the first petition or request Jesus says in this model prayer, how we to pray. He says, first, understand that God is your Father, God in heaven is your Father, and the first petition, your first request should be, hallowed be your name. Here's what that means. It means to set apart as holy your name. Here's what it's saying. He's saying that the first request, the first thing that our hearts should be asking God for is, before our agenda before our wants. Notice how it falls in the prayer. We haven't gotten to our daily bread. We haven't gotten to forgive us our sins, our debts. We haven't gotten to lead us not into temptation. Before we get to any of those things about ourselves, he says the first request before our agenda, before our wants, before our needs, before our health, before our families, he says should be this. Father, hallow or set apart your name. Father, make your name to be seen as holy and glorious and beautiful as it is. Father, show your power and your strength so that, so that you might be worshipped as the great one that you are. That's what it says. That's the first request. And then Jesus says, the next to pray like this, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Come, your will be done. Notice how the yours there, not my, your kingdom, 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, this is a prayer of desire. What is your greatest desire? I don't want your church answer. I grew up in church in Sunday school. The answer is always Jesus, right? And I pray that's true for you. But I really want your true, before God, honest answer. Don't yell it out. Just in your soul, in your mind, what is your greatest desire? The greatest one. The deepest one. The first. What do you truly care about? What do you pray about? See, here, here's what I know. If you're in a place of trouble, and in a room like this, there are a number of us here who are in a place of any amount of trouble. If you're in a place of trouble, real trouble, I mean real trouble, like rent due tomorrow, I don't know how to pay it. I got a call from the doctor, and I don't know what we're going to do. That kind of prayer that kind of problem, you're going to pray. And you're going to pray with passion, and you're going to pray with incredible focus and with the greatest of care. Because the greater the crisis, the more passionate and focused your prayer will be. But Jesus is saying something here. What are we supposed to care about? What's supposed to be for a believer, for a child of the Father in heaven? What's supposed to be our greatest care, our greatest desire? What's supposed to move the needle for us? What Jesus is saying should move us is your kingdom come. That's what he says should stir us. That's what he says should be our greatest desire. So it becomes our first and greatest request to the Father. May your name be seen as holy and may you cause your kingdom to come. See, here's the thing. The great problems that we see in the culture around us, the great problems we see in the church, the great problems that we see in our own lives as Christians, all of those problems are because Jesus is not the one who's actively ruling and reigning in those areas. His kingdom is not apparent. It's not seen. It's like the book of Judges. I just read it in my Bible reading in the end of several times throughout the book of Judges, and it ends this way. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, the mark of the kingdom of God are people doing what seems right to the king, not to themselves. The mark of the kingdom of God is are people doing what seems right to the king, not to themselves. And Jesus is saying, this is what he's saying, that this should be, in fact, it must be for anyone who calls him Lord and calls God Father, it, this must be the deepest desire of our hearts are you under his rule and reign? Do you care about, more about your desires, doing what seems right to you, or doing what seems right to the king? When you think about your life, is that the greatest thing that you think about? When you think about the church, 
Does your heart move within you not to want to be happier with the church that you attend, nor to find a church that fits you and your family better, but is your greatest prayer, the thing that stirs your soul, the greatest desire that you have is, Lord, may your kingdom come here. Cause it to come here so that your name might be hallowed and worshipped and enjoyed by everyone that's around us. And if you say, hey, that's right, yeah, that is what I care about, man, what I want to ask you is, does your life look like that's the greatest thing you care about? Does your life look like that's your deepest desire? Do you actually care if it's happening? Is that what moves you? Is the question of whether Christ's kingdom is growing and expanding in our community, in our church, in my life, in my family, in Myrtle Beach, in Conway, in our generation, in our country, is that what ever keeps you up at night? Does it ever disturb you? What actually disturbs you? Your job, your career choices, your school career, your romantic life, your children, their education and their extracurricular activities. Look, those are all important things. Those are all things that we must and we should bring to the Father in prayer. I don't want to demean them. Here's what I just want to say. Perhaps the reason that you don't see more prayers answered, if indeed you're praying at all, is that your order of priority is all wrong. You actually, maybe you actually don't care about, and you certainly don't pray about God's kingdom coming before yours. Because that's what's exactly is going on, by the way. You don't care about and you don't pray for and earnestly desire to see God's kingdom come because you're actually more concerned about your kingdom. And you really want God to bless your agenda for your personal kingdom. Do you see how this requests your kingdom come, how it sifts our desires? Jesus is saying that this is the heart of the person who can actually call God Father. The Father's desires, his kingdom, his rule become our greatest longing. And we possess a growing, not perfect, but a growing desire to see him recognized as the good, loving, gracious, powerful God that he is. And he says that should be our prayer because we look around and we see that's not the case. God alone, God alone is all-powerful. He governs time and eternity. But what we see is this. The wind and the waves obey and recognize his rule and reign, but most people around us don't. The wind and waves recognize his rule and reign, but most people around us don't. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher in London during the last century, said this. At once the question arises, why do not all men bow before his sacred name? Why is not every man on this earth concerned about humbling himself now in the presence of God and worshiping him and using every moment and adoring him and spreading forth his name? Why not? The answer is, of course, because of sin. Because there's another kingdom 
the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness. You see, Satan is called the God of this world in Scripture. He doesn't have ultimate power or authority, but he wants to. And he wants to rule and reign rather than God. And he seems to hold sway here, doesn't he? He works his pride and rebellion against God through man's pride and rebellion. There are times where it seems like he's gaining ground, doesn't it? There's times where it seems like he's gaining a lot more ground than God is. It can look like he's winning. It can look like he's the one that's all-powerful when he isn't. And that's why we're given the command here what to do. Does Jesus say this? Whenever he says that we look around and we see, wow, uh, men don't seem to be following his kingdom. Uh, The church seems to be losing numbers. We seem to be losing sway. I I don't see uh, that God, sure, God is doing some good things, but it it seems like the tide is pushing outward rather than inward. Does he say, hey, when we look around and we see that, does he say, does Jesus say, uh, go and work hard to elect rulers and politicians who will bring my kingdom? Is that what he says? Does he say for us to work harder, to come up with better strategies to counter Satan and his kingdom? Does he, or does he even say, hey, guys, don't even worry about it. Things are just going to get worse and worse. Just try to hold on until I come back. Is that what he says? No, he says to pray to the Father. Our Father in heaven. And pray that he would cause, that he would cause his kingdom to come and his will to be done. Sort of like when Jesus told the the disciples, hey, look around, the the fields out there, they're ripe for harvest. And then, which means like, hey, there's a lot of souls out here who are ready to come into the kingdom. They they just, just need somebody to come and tell them the gospel about who I am and what I've done and bring them into the kingdom. They'll come so easy if there's just people to sit out there to them. Does he say, hey, Go and work longer and harder and figure out a way to make it happen? He says, no. He says, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send workers into the harvest. See, here's what's true. Satan is too powerful for any of us to counter. This world system is too big, and a person's heart is impossible. A single person's heart is impossible to change. But God... But God can cause his kingdom to come. He has defeated Satan. He has overcome the world. And by his mighty spirit, he can change the hearts of men and women. And he will cause his kingdom to come even here and now if we will only pray. Now, what would it look like for God to answer that prayer? So, okay, uh, I'm tracking with you enough, Randy. I, His kingdom should be my number one priority, his will to be done, for his name to be hallowed. I get that, and I should be praying about that. That should be my biggest desire. But what is that, what would that even look like if that prayer was answered? If we're going to pray for his kingdom to come, it's important to know what we're praying for. But what does it look like for God's kingdom to expand? What exactly is it that we're praying for? Really quickly, we don't have too much time to go a full like doctoral, doctoral level dissertation here, but just let's give you a, kind of a big overview that the kingdom of God, when we say the kingdom of God, it has three realities to it. 
First of all, it means the kingdom has already come in Jesus. Jesus is the king. Whenever he came on earth, fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, walked through his life perfectly, entered ministry, he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. It was the good news that he, the king, had come to earth to reestablish his righteous rule and reign, and his kingdom was breaking into the world. That was his message. The one big point to hear that is that the kingdom has already come in Christ and it's breaking into the world and nothing can stop it. This is how it happened. Jesus won the kingdom of this world back from Satan and his forces by taking our sin on the cross. By taking on our guilt and our shame. By bearing the wrath of God and triumphing over death He defeated Satan and destroyed any claims he and his minions have over us. And in that way, the cross became his his throne. The crown of thorns became his crown. He became the ruler, reigner of this world, pulling the keys of the kingdom back from Satan. And in that way, his kingdom has come and has begun, and it will never be thwarted. This kingdom has already come in Christ. The kingdom is also here and now as Christ rules and reigns in a person's heart as their king and their Lord. As, as you, as I, as we believe in him, as we submit to him and obey him, he rules and reigns in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives, in us and through us. And he shows his good rule and his reign, his kingdom, through the changed heart of every newborn believer, every reborn believer. His kingdom has already come. His kingdom is here in the hearts and minds of believers, those that he rules and reigns. And his kingdom will fully come when Christ returns and renews heaven and earth. When he finally comes and makes all that is wrong right. When he'll rule in justice and righteousness and evil will be dealt with and all that is evil will be made good again. Don't you long for that day? So when we pray, when you pray, your kingdom come, what we're praying for is for all of that to happen. Lord, hasten us to the day whenever you return and make all things right and new. But until that day comes, Lord, bring your kingdom here and now like a city set on a hill, like a light in darkness, like salt in meat or in food. Lord, bring your kingdom to bear here. Let it expand more and more into more people's hearts and minds. May more people see you as the Savior and Lord, confess you as their king, bow their knee to you, repent of their sins, and follow after you. That's what the church is to be. The church is to be the visible inbreaking of the kingdom of God in this dark world. I'll just give you an illustration of what that's like. When Jesus was about to ascend to his throne in heaven, after he had resurrected, he, he gathered his disciples and he's, he's getting ready to lift off right off the mountain. I don't even want to lift off the mountain. And he's gathered with them and he has this exchange with them. They say, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says to them, 
It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What was Jesus' answer about the kingdom when they asked him the question about the kingdom that was to come? What was his answer? He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will do my work. Or what is, what is he saying? My kingdom will expand. You see the beauty there? I'll do the work. I'll expand my kingdom by pouring my spirit out upon you. And through that power, you will see it expand. So here's what they did. Acts 1.14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to what? Great strategies and, and, and plans? They were devoting themselves to, no, no, they were devoting themselves to a building plan. That, 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 that's, that's what it was. They were devoting themselves to, to, to better evangelistic training. No, no. They were devoting themselves to having a cooler band so they could attract people in Jerusalem and Judea. No, no, actually, you're right. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. You know what they were praying? Lord, your kingdom come. Lord, you said, you said to go, but you said that your kingdom will not come. You told us to wait in Jerusalem until power from on high is poured out upon us. Lord, cause cause your spirit to pour out upon us so that your kingdom may come. And look at what happened when that, when that day happened, when the day of Pentecost rolled around and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them on that day. Peter, who was kind of all over the place before, kind of still all over the place afterwards, he suddenly stands up and to, speaks to the same crowds, some of the same crowds that were calling for Jesus to be crucified, who were mocking him whenever he was hanging on the cross. He stands before some of those same people and he says, you called out for the Son of God to be crucified. You know what they say to him? He speaks this bold, short message, sorry, he speaks this bold, short message to them at the beginning. This says he went on over and over again after that. He says, speaks this bold message to them and this is what happens in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? When was the last time you were in a service like that? Or where the, the speaker, the preacher didn't have to cajole people, or every head bowed, every eye closed, or raise a hand, or, oh, is there somebody else? And I'm going to wait around, I'm going to kind of push in the crowd for a response. When was the last time you were in a service and people cried out, brothers, what shall we, what shall we do? Because the Spirit was working on their hearts. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for who, all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. Oh, Lord, cause your kingdom to come like this. Cause your kingdom to come like this. Is, is that your prayer this morning? Is that your greatest desire? I'll be honest with you. We have, we have accepted in the church such a lukewarm level of commitment to Christ and his kingdom. Unless he reveals it to our heart, I don't know how we get out of the state that we're in. We have accepted Jesus-branded American dream. And we've called that Christianity. And wonder why we lose people and the people around us don't seem very interested in it. You know what, they're like, hey, I don't need one more thing to do. When they don't understand, and we don't understand, Jesus isn't one more thing to add to your life. He is the center and sum total of life for you. Is that your greatest desire, his kingdom to come, his will to be done? If not, then today call out in repentance to him, and I promise you he will forgive and he will answer and he will begin to remake your desires so they line up with his. And my last question for you this morning, are you even a part of that kingdom? Are you here this morning and you're like, I don't even know that I'm a part of that kingdom? Jesus is not my king. He's not my Lord. I've not fully trusted on him as my Savior. Something in my heart, Randy, when you read those words from Scripture, Randy, it wasn't your eloquence, when you read those words from Scripture and it says, brothers, what shall we do? My heart said, what, what can I do? I would just say, take stock of your life this morning. Consider the claims of Jesus the King on your life. See your immortal soul before him. What I also want you to see is your Savior hanging on a tree in love for you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is a saying, trustworthy. He came to save sinners. He didn't come for the good. He didn't come for the mostly good. He didn't come for the partly good. The only qualification to enter his kingdom is not any sort of resume about what you've done or not done. It is simply do you see your need for him to be your savior and your Lord? When we respond, see your savior hanging on a tree in love for you and bow down and confess him as your Lord and savior today. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may the Lord 
move upon our hearts individually and collectively as a church, that that would become more and more the greatest desire of our souls. It would press us to seeking him in prayer and believing that he will answer it because this is a great encouragement. Jesus is the one that gave us the prayer. So when he said for us to ask the Father for your kingdom to come, I think we can bank on it that the the Father will answer that prayer if we ask and we seek with all our hearts. Father, I thank you for your goodness and your grace to us in Christ. Thank you for your love for us. God, every single one of us, God, I consistently have let other desires cheat your desires. Lord, I pray that you would make us more and more into a people who seek your kingdom, your rule and reign above anything else and everything else. In your son's name we pray. Amen.